Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. I hope you guys are all doing well. Do me a favor, if you enjoy this video, hit that like button. Today, Sunday, December 11th, marks a full month since University of Idaho students Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Zana Cornado, and Ethan Chapin had their young lives ripped away from them by a monster who remains unknown. I mention the four students' names a lot because I don't want them to simply be known as victims. They were people's beloved family members, their children, their siblings, their friends. Despite the almost surreal feel of this brutal crime, Kaylee, Maddie, Zana, and Ethan were living, breathing human beings, and they've only been gone for a month. I recently listened to a fascinating show on Gisela Kay's channel, Grizzly True Crime, with criminal profiler John Kelly. John Kelly is a rare individual. He beat a decades-long addiction to cocaine to go on to become not only a criminal profiler, but also a psychotherapist and an author. His success at overcoming his addiction has to be encouraging to anyone in the throes of such a disease. Kelly was on Gisela's show to discuss this case and to help fill in any blanks in our understanding of the perpetrator's criminal profile. I'll leave a link to her video in the description. Now, in my video today, I'm going straight to the meat, if you will, of Gisela's two-hour-plus-long discussion with Kelly. I'll be sharing Kelly's essential points and adding in my two cents as well. Let's get started. Mr. Kelly started out the discussion with some reassuring news, and that is that he's certain the perpetrator will be caught. Per Kelly, it's only a matter of time before this person lands in a cage where he will spend the rest of his life. Kelly also wanted to let the students' families know that he believes the police will get the guy and that they just need to realize that it takes time to gather all the information, to get the results back from the lab, to analyze all this evidence along with the crime scene and the blood evidence. Kelly wanted one family member to know that hiring a private investigator isn't necessarily a good idea at this point because the police will not share any of their evidence with a PI. And it also sounds like there's no way one PI can do the work of the Moscow police, the Idaho State Police, and the FBI. Kelly urged the families to deal with their grief, to cry, to try and process this event. He felt some of them might even still be in shock. Kelly urged them to let the investigators do their job, give them the time needed, be patient. Kelly also pointed out that there's not one cop working on this case who doesn't want the perpetrator caught. They are as eager as the rest of the citizens to get this perpetrator behind bars. Kelly was trying to reassure the parents, and he said that this case is nowhere near cold, and there's no need to resort to such measures as hiring a PI at this point. According to Kelly, the perpetrator of this brutal crime 
could have been motivated by one of two things. One, the desire to get revenge for some perceived slight or diss by one or more of the girls. Or two, the desire to fulfill a sick and twisted fantasy. Kelly mentioned something I heard Chris McDonough of the interview room say as well about this second type of predator, and that is, even if they do not essay their victims, they may still be deriving some sort of physical gratification out of the act, the act of using that sharp-edged object. And the weapon that was used in this crime may be symbolic in their sick minds of male genitalia. And in the act of committing the crime with said object, the perpetrator may experience physical pleasure. Ted Bundy was this type of predator. By the way, Bundy was nicknamed the campus killer because he often targeted female college students. And I have to say that when I think of this Idaho suspect doing this to four human beings, it does at times feel more like a serialist than some college kid who feels rejected and angry. But regardless of whether this suspect was out for revenge or out for some twisted fantasy, Kelly said he likely spent some time following the girls and watching them. Kelly pointed out that hill at the back of the girl's house. He said it offered the perfect place for the perpetrator to sit and watch the girls through the back windows. Kelly also pointed out the similarities between this case and the one in Delphi. In the Delphi case, the young teens were done in, according to Kelly, by someone using a sharp-edged object. And like these students in Idaho, Libby and Abby were not essayed by the person who took their lives. Gisela then pointed out that the Delphi case, like this case, occurred on the 13th of the month. And apparently, a lot of other cases have gone down on the 13th day of the month as well. The Evansdale case and the Moab case. Maybe there is something to the number 13. I'm not one for superstition, but maybe these perpetrators are. Kelly, like the other criminal profilers commenting on this case, believes the perpetrator is likely a young man between 20 and 30 years old. He also believes this person took quite some time to plan or at least fantasize about this crime. He also knew the layout of the house in the dark. He knew where to go to find his intended victims. He came armed with a weapon and perhaps other objects to assist him in getting away with the crime. Kelly felt that the perpetrator likely knew the advantages of this particular off-campus house, for someone who wants to get away with such a crime. He pointed out that the sides of the house at 1122 King Road do not have any windows except for one small one on the side of the house that is not next to the large brick apartment complex. By the way, I also noticed that that large brick complex has no windows on the side, which is right next to the girl's home. 
So Kelly feels the perpetrator knew that the only sides of the girl's house that he would need to be concerned about were the front and the back. Kelly described the area inside the house where the perpetrator would commit his heinous acts as the kill zone. And this house, because of its lack of side windows, offered a perfectly contained kill zone. In addition to picking a house where he was not likely to be witnessed committing the crime, the suspect also minimized this risk by carrying out the crime between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., a time when it was still dark out and when the students living at the house and neighbors living around the house would most likely be sound asleep. Kelly also said that the suspect might have chosen that particular weekend as well because it was a holiday weekend. A lot of the university students had already gone home for Thanksgiving, so that parking lot behind the brick apartment complex probably had fewer cars and fewer people coming and going on that weekend. All these things lowered the perpetrator's risk of being seen going into and out of the girl's house. Kelly also feels that this perpetrator scoped out the girl's house and the surrounding area before he committed the crime, that he looked for cameras and considered where adjacent buildings had windows. He picked a house where everything was mostly working in his favor. The perpetrator may also have come to the crime scene equipped with things like cut-resistant Kevlar gloves, plastic coverings for his shoes, perhaps additional clothing or other items that enabled him to keep the blood from the crime scenes inside the two bedrooms from being tracked out. By all reports, there was none of the red stuff outside at least Zana's room. I say this because the surviving roommates didn't realize their fellow roommates had been done in by someone wielding a sharp-edged object. Their 911 call was for an unconscious person, and the story goes that the person they thought was unconscious was behind a locked door. I'm assuming they were wondering about Zana Cornado and possibly Ethan Chapin as well. It's unclear if the surviving roommates went up to the third floor to knock on Maddie Mogan's door as well. No one has talked about the surviving roommates seeing blood anywhere in the house, which is so astonishing. How did this guy manage to pull this off when the crime scenes inside the rooms were said to be so messy? This points as well to the perpetrator having some knowledge or skill in containing the mess within the rooms and in planning the crime. Kelly also made a really good point, and that is that whoever did this was likely not intoxicated at the time. He got into the house and out of it in record time. I will add that this person also had some degree of stamina, I know he had likely adrenaline rushing through his body, but he also needed to have a certain degree of strength to do this to four separate people. Kelly also pointed out that the suspect was very confident 
And he said this because whoever did this went into a home where there were multiple people. The victims' cars were parked outside. That's a good sign that they were home. Even if the perpetrator didn't know about Ethan Chapin being there, there were still a lot of people in the home who could have had weapons, who could have maybe, if they'd all worked together, overcome this intruder. There's strength in numbers, but not when you're asleep and not when you don't have a weapon to fight back with. Kelly believes the suspect had used that sharp-edged object before and had some experience in cutting. Thus, he may be a hunter, an ex-military person, or I guess a current military person too, or someone who works in a slaughterhouse. Kelly also mentioned that this person likely has had experience with blood before because he's clearly not squeamish around it. When asked if he felt the perpetrator was from the Moscow community, Kelly said that he thinks there's a 60 to 70 percent chance of that and a 30 to 40 percent chance that he's from outside the community. Another person queried Kelly as to whether or not he felt that more than one person could be involved. Kelly said it's possible, but not probable. He explained this by saying it's hard enough for one person to get into and out of a house without being seen. It would be all the more difficult to pull this off with two people. So while it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities, that there were two perpetrators, it's probably not likely. When asked what he believes the perpetrator is doing and thinking right now, Kelly said that based on conversations he's had with serialists in prison, all of these offenders have some degree of paranoia and that this suspect is likely terrified of getting caught right now. Kelly explained that during the attack, this person was enjoying a rush of adrenaline, and if it was some sort of physical fantasy, then those moments would be almost orgasmic. Post the crime, he would be left with four bodies, and he'd be thinking about how much mileage he could put between himself and those bodies. At this point, Kelly believes the perpetrator is consumed by fear and paranoia. As soon as he made his exit on the morning of the crime, the suspect would have been asking himself things like, did anyone see me enter and exit the house? Did I leave any fingerprints behind? Did any strands of my hair or fibers from my clothing fall? Were there really no cameras in that area? Did any of the victims get my skin under their nails? So Kelly wanted the victims' families to know that at the very least, they can feel a little bit better knowing that the perpetrator is absolutely tormented right now with fear. Kelly said that perps like this, while they might not have a conscience or any guilt, they do experience fear. Kelly then brought up Delphi's suspect Richard Allen and said he must have been terrified when he saw the video Libby German took of Bridge Guy, provided Allen is Bridge Guy. 
He's innocent until proven guilty. Kelly also stated that the perpetrator is watching the news right now and keeping track of the case, and he's probably even spending time watching YouTube videos about the case. At one point, Kelly spoke directly to the perpetrator, saying, and I quote, The cops are coming to get you in the night while you're sleeping because you are so dangerous. You left something. Someone saw you. You're going to be in a cage. End quote. Apparently, Kelly had said the same thing about the Delphi perpetrator, and he was right. We now have Richard Allen in custody, provided he's the guy who did it. Kelly added that now that the police stated that they're looking for a white Hyundai Elantra circa 2011 to 2013, means the perpetrator is probably even more stressed out and worried. Kelly also is urging the Moscow Police Department to offer a reward. In his mind, rewards are very helpful, and they often lead to quality tips. Kelly said, and I quote, Money loosens lips. As for whether this perpetrator will do this same thing again, Kelly said he will likely do it again, which is why he needs to be off the streets. And this is especially true if he is of the fantasy variety of perpetrator. Kelly also mentioned that the perpetrator is probably taking a cooling off period right now, especially because all eyes in Moscow are looking for him and that white Elantra. But that over time, such a criminal like this will likely start planning anew. And if he is the fantasy type perpetrator, then he's addicted to this stuff. And the urge to do this again will eventually show up. And he'll be out trawling for more victims, learning the routines of potential victims, looking once again for a house that has no security cameras, no motion detector lights, no alarm system, etc. Kelly advised anyone living in Moscow to travel in pairs and take other security precautions. Get the security system for your home or your apartment. Get a ring camera. Perhaps get a large dog for added safety and be aware of your surroundings at all times. And personally, I think we should all do these things. I mean, there's crazy people walking among us every day. And by the way, Kelly also talked about that guy, James Leonard. He's the 39-year-old man who was arrested last week for attacking his wife and child. Kelly says he needs to be eliminated by the police. And by eliminated, Kelly means he needs to be cleared of involvement in the student's deaths. In case you don't know who this guy is, Leonard is the guy who showed up in his mugshot with either a purple bandage or a purple cast on his arm. Kelly felt that his past criminal history, which includes taking the life of another person and being caught as a peeping Tom, and this along with his apparent fascination with sharp-edged objects, 
makes him someone who could be responsible for the student's deaths. When Leonard was arrested, he had two sharp-edged objects in one pocket and one sharp-edged object in his hand. So he's a dangerous person. I hope this gives you guys some fodder for contemplation today, and I hope to see you again until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Do me a favor, smash that like button, subscribe to my channel, become one of us.